and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Sal Freudenberg and this week we're speaking to Alex Schladerbeck, I hope I said that right, about testing. I'm also joined by my Cucumber co-founder, Steve Tick. Alex is an absolute shining star in the testing community and beyond and we were honoured to have her keynote at Cucumfest this year, the same year that she was named Most Influential Agile Testing Professional Person, which is a bit of a mouthful, but nevertheless pretty brilliant, um, by Agile Testing Days. So hot off the press from her keynote at Craft Conference. In fact, I wasn't even quite sure if she's left there yet, but I think she has. Welcome, Alex. Hi, it's really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Oh, you're very welcome. We're delighted. So can you start off by just telling us, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I think the, the best way of describing me is that I identify as a tester. Um, <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have a lot of roles and I have a lot of hats. And one of those hats is now also being a manager, uh, which is a whole, a whole new uh, barrel of fun and, and an exciting thing as well. But in my in my heart, I, I remain a tester. I, anything you give me, I, I test. We, we literally just had me testing the Zencaster before this uh, podcast. I, I touched it and it broke. Um, and of course, it didn't really break. I know that. Um, but any, anything you put in front of me, I will probably have a question about or discover a problem with. And that doesn't matter whether it's a piece of software. It can be a process, a system. Um, I feel like I'm an airport tester a lot of the time. Um, the processes there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I just kind of walk through the world exploring and testing and, and finding interesting questions and problems. Um, and I'm very lucky that I basically get to do that for my job. Um, I don't do a great deal of hands-on testing anymore, except for when I grab people and say, hey, can we do some pairing, please? Um, but I do do a lot of work with customers, teaching them of coaching testers, uh, coaching developers as well, um, getting them more excited about testing and um yeah, and hopefully making the world more aware of how important testing and quality is uh, one step one step at a time. Mm, perfect. You reminded me about an incident that I remember at IKEA where there was a bit of a process. I think it might have been a returns process or something, and I was just like, how, how, who? Somebody thought this through somewhere, but like, oh, so there must be a bit of a tester, a bit of a tester in me as well, I think. Um yeah. So you recently keynoted at Cucumfest about whole team quality, which obviously like your passion completely shone out. Was there a particular experience I wanted to know? And it can be either a good or a bad one that led you to feeling like this is a really important topic that I just totally need to share with the world. <laughs> yeah, um, various ones. I mean, when when I started out, um, okay, this, this goes back into the, the dark ages now. Um, when I started out, I was actually doing documentation. That was my official job title. Only it turned out, well, translation was the official job title. And it turned out there was nothing to translate. And so if you're trying to write software documentation, what you end up doing a lot of the time is testing because you have an idea of how it should work. And then you go and see if it does. And generally it doesn't. Um, and this was back before there was anything approaching continuous builds or continue. These were just, these were things that just didn't happen or continuous integration, test automation, uh, all of these things that we, that we know and rely on today. And, and, and I have testers coming and say, oh yeah, you know, the quality in our project isn't great. I'm like, yes, and we should work on that. And mm -hmm. remember, I come from the dark days where you had to beg developers to even do you a build. And it was kind of hit or miss whether the build would even work. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, And so being in that situation and, and releasing and being responsible for, for doing that made me, made me realize how important it is. 
Um, when I finally understood that even the tiniest, tiniest change can mean that everything can go wrong. Um, that was a big, like I have, I have looked into the abyss kind of moment. <laughs> um, and through, and through working on projects, um, one of the projects I worked on for the longest time, I was also, I was a product owner and, and really wanting that, having that, that pressure to release, get features out. And also knowing from the test perspective that if we weren't doing enough, then, then that wasn't going to be good enough for me and good enough for users. Uh, that was when we really started to experiment with how, how can these things look? So uh, a bit, a little bit of this is logical and a little bit of, I never want to have to go through that on my own again. So what do you think are some good indicators that a team as a whole is quality focused? Oh yeah, good, good question. I actually do an, um, an exercise on this in, in one of my workshops. Uh, and so one of the things can be um, that you don't have a to test lane neither an explicit nor an implicit one. I'm, I'm well aware that you can get rid of a te to test swim lane and still have, oh yeah, those ones are still in doing because we're waiting for the tester to finish them, right? Like, <laughs> um, so this idea of to test um, isn't coupled to the one person or two people or whatever who are doing that. So you don't ever have that kind of, um, that kind of a, a block going on. Um, mm. Another thing would be that test automation is happening at multiple levels and is also done by multiple people. So yes, I 100% agree that unit testing is something that is, that's the job of developers. Um, however, getting testers to pair on that with developers is a really awesome idea. Mm -hmm. So I would say as a general rule, looking at a team, the more I see multiple people working on multiple tasks, then that's a sign for me saying, okay, everyone is, everyone is involved in this. And then you have other things like if someone, one of the nicest sort of, I don't know, is it a metric? One of the nicest things that I would look for is if someone comes in and says, hey, you know, you, you really messed this up. This awful error got out into production and, and who missed that? That the team basically says, we did. We missed it. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the person who forgot to write the automated test. It wasn't the person who forgot to do the code review. We, we as a team didn't get this. Um, and that's, that's the feeling that you need to get. Um, those are those are some of the things that I'd look for. The, the way you're talking has really reminded me of um, a conversation I had with Chris Matz a couple of weeks ago, um, and he said he, he doesn't like using the term tester. He likes using the term quality designer. So there, uh, that's the role on the on the team is to help the whole team think about how to build quality in, and it, it means you don't think about it as happening at a certain point. It's something that you're doing all the way through. Yeah, I really, I really like, uh, I really like that name. So we've, we're actually having this exact conversation um, in house as well, um, because I, I like saying I'm a tester because people understand that. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there is still, uh, there is still a lot of people who think that if you're a tester, you basically work through manual test scripts. Um, the word that I've started using, at least in basically at least in talks and we're, we're internally we're trying to figure out what we want to use is something like embedded quality engineer or embedded quality consultant embedded in the sense of i am in the team i am part mm -hmm. of the team and quality because it's bigger than just testing just in um in quotes there um and either engineer or consultant as a sense of either i'm doing a lot of hands-on stuff i know there are people who don't like using engineer if you're not really an engineer words are hard <laughs> yeah. and um, or consultant because what a lot of the stuff that I'm doing um, in in that kind of a context is 
I may end up in a team not actually doing a great deal of solo hands-on work at all, but I am that necessary glue that keeps everything together and has, has the overview for everything, coaches on this and the specialist. I basically like to say it's the person in the team that has the focus, the specialization and the passion to do it because there's no point in having someone that could theoretically do all of these things but doesn't actually care. We need people who care about this. And um, words are hard, uh, but yes, getting, I like quality designer, I like quality engineer, I like quality consultant. Um, those are maybe a bit more descriptive, but also not quite as catchy as tester. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the embedded though, to show, to, to show that they're, you know, in the team, an integral part of the team. And w- which kind of leads me on to, to another question is, when you see that not working, you know, when you see that quality often being seen as, oh yeah, well, that's just something that the testers do. It's just something the testers are interested in. Why, why do you think that comes about? Oh gosh, I think I think that the main reason is because quality remains something that is very intangible. Um, I had an interesting thought experiment with a developer. Uh, we we reduced this down to if you have a team of one person and that t- person is a let's say a standard developer, somebody who can write you some application code, and you have the other person who is tester, quality engineer, whatever, who might be able to write some code, but maybe not the full application code. Um, and, and his point was, well, which one of those people is producing value because the, the developer is at least going to produce you something. And I said, I see that the te- even if the tester ends up asking questions that help us to understand what the thing would have better been um, or could be or could not be, uh, that's still value. But it comes down at the end of the day to we are, it is easier for us to go, ooh, I can see this thing, I can click it, I can use it, than to really highly estimate the value that we get from the information from testing testing itself gives us the information and then we have to do things with it and i don't like the idea of saying we're just going to make all of the information visible so i have seven hundred thousand test cases i have four different test metric reports that's Mm -hmm. not for me where where i'm saying show the value because that might not be the most valuable thing um so it's intangible and it's uh and i think the other thing um is that how can i put this a lot of teams have a quality strategy that works for them but that isn't particularly good Mm. so my best example of this is if i've been working on a long running project for many years with a a reasonably stable team stable team well-known technology a customer that knows me software that's already out in production and has been being used uh, and maybe then you add into the mix that um, it's for it's for a big company. And so I never really hear from the users directly and they don't have any pressure that they can put on me about this went horribly wrong. That's a quality strategy. Like, sure, I can make mistakes. I might not make quite as many because it's been running for a long time. That's a strategy. It's just not a very good one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and people have, we, we've gotten away with that for so long. And then, you know, you will go into teams and people go, yeah, but it's working for us. Uh, and then my, my thing is to, to kind of show them, yes, and you have a quality strategy and that's great for you. But all that would have to change is that you lose a senior person from your team or you have a technology switch or something, and then that won't work for you anymore. Um, but people don't see that perspective of it. So I think it's, yeah, because it's intangible and because people's quality strategies still work for them, but maybe they won't forever. Yeah, and I wonder, you're making me remember uh, back in the day, you know, where you're kind of 
quality was considered to be just writing down what you did and then proving that you'd done that, like irrelevant of how effective that was. So that that really resonates with me. I can I can remember that. And so what sort of tips do you have then for people who would like to have their team or their organization consider quality to be something more holistic and encompassing? Yeah, I think that one of the one of the best things that you can do, and I've been craft reminded me of this uh, from a few different talks as well. One of the best things that you can do as somebody who knows about it and is excited about it is to sit down and work with other people. Even if, um, and I love doing this, I love pairing with developers as well. Um, even if you sit down next to a developer and like, it's okay, I'm not going to make you test. I just want to, I want to see what you're doing. Can I help you write this? Getting into those conversations with them. Um, asking the questions and most of the time, even if the developer didn't really know you very well or didn't rate your skills very well, they will notice that like, hey, this person has good questions to ask. Um, and from that, maybe you get your first ally, um, somebody who's willing to stand on your side. Um, and when you say, but we should invest more time into testing this or how about we want to try this out. Uh, so that's step one, just pairing with people. Um, and then you can, what I really like doing is uh, doing exploratory testing workshops. Um, and sessions with with customers, with developers, with the whole team, uh, and also doing things like mob testing, um, exploratory testing in a mob, so that people can learn about it. They can see that it helps. I think for a lot of teams, if they haven't been doing exploratory testing well, there's a there's a general thing that exploratory testing is just clicking around, which it really, really isn't. It is so so much more than that. Um, it's one of the most one of the most fantastic and and if you look at it from the outside, magical things that we can do. And we, we as an industry are very bad at describing what goes on when we do that. Um, and when people get behind that and they realize what kind of information they find out from doing that, then they're generally more interested about, um, yeah, about helping out in it. And depending on which way you approach it, how the team is, you can either say, okay, and the, a good basis for this is to have some automation so that we're not finding really low hanging fruit. Um, or if you've got a lot of automation to say, okay, now we can have some fun. What's, what, what are the things that we haven't thought about? Um, but it's the problem with all of these things is that it's culture change. And you are often, if it's a, as a tester in a team or whatever name we're using for them, you're often faced with being not exactly in the position to directly affect that culture change. I mean, you can never directly affect it anyway, but you don't always have, you might not necessarily have the standing. So it's, it's a tough one and it's a, it's a long one and, but it's, it's worth starting and it's worth, um, yeah, just keep, keep poking it. And then not in the nasty way of, I told you so I knew this release would go wrong, but after, if you saw it coming to say, okay, in the retrospective, okay, how can we, how can we stop this happening again? And by the way, here's, here's the list of things I've been suggesting that we could do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so many, so many uh, questions. I, I just think for the listeners, it might be worth very quickly um, if we can have a quick definition of mob testing um, and and maybe exploratory testing in a bit more depth, and then maybe we can go into exploratory testing a bit more. That's a very good idea. Um, so mob testing is um, all of the people uh, who are relevant for a project. So all of the, the big thinkers, <laughs> all of the clever people working together on the same computer on the same problem at the same time. Um, I think the first term that came was mob programming. Um, so all of the people working on the same problem on the same computer at the same time, and it's usually a programming problem and you can apply exactly the same thing to testing. Um, the way that it works is that you'll have somebody being the driver. That person is typing or interacting with the system 
and that person isn't allowed to think. Um, that's really, really important because if you put me as a driver for something where we're doing mob programming, I, I don't know how to use visual code to write Python. Like I can do other things, but I, I don't even know if that's possible. I might have just, <laughs> um, for example, um, but somebody telling me what to type is fine. And then once I'm in the mob, when my turn as a driver is over, um, then I can, then I don't have to say you have to type exactly this. I can be saying things like, Oh, what happens if null comes into this? Or what happens if we have multiple lists or multiple people? And then it's my input coming into it as well. Um, hopefully I've done the people who defined that, uh, okay. In my, in my quick definition of it, um, and exploratory testing. So the, I think the very standard definition, which I can never manage to quite get together is that it is simultaneous test design, test execution and learning from your tests. That's not quite the exact definition. Um, but the idea is you don't have a script. Um, you're not following something you are taking a step and learning from that step and applying that to what your next step will be. Um, so it is, people often say it's unstructured. That's not true. It's very structured. It's just that the structures are in millisecond level decisions that we make to what's the next thing that I'm going to do. Mm. Um, and I actually like what Marit says. She says that if you're learning, learning changes what you do. So it, and it's completely emergent. I only know what I'm going to do next when I do it. Um, and my general definition of anything that's exploring is that if you don't know what steps you need to do to solve the problem, but you need to find out, you need to do something to find out what the next step will be, then you're exploring, which means that things like debugging is exploring as well, because you never approach a problem like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do here to figure out this thing. You have your set of tools that you use, um, and then you see which one of them helps you and you see which ideas you get next. And so, um, yeah, learning from your, learning from what you've just done to define what you're going to do next. And that, that's oddly reminding me of, um, of, of something in anthropology where you kind of go in and you start off thinking that everything's strange. You try and go in with a very neutral mind, like everything's weird. And then you kind of start noticing patterns of things that are strange. And then those are the threads that you pull and then you get deeper and deeper based on those threads. So it sounds really, really similar, really similar. It, it is. And, and you're, you're making me, you're, you're firing off all of the neurons in my brain as well, because um, the, one of the things that I saw in a great keynote at CraftConf uh, last week by Katrina, I forget her surname, but she works for GitHub, um, was the difference between experts and um, beginners. And an expert um, already knows what kind of patterns are relevant to look for. So there's that aspect of it. Um, which was fascinating because that's the that's the question that gets asked. How did you know to look there? How did you know that that was going to be a problem? And one of the things I'm working on is no longer having the answer. Oh, because I just knew because that's not very teachable. So that's that's one thing. And in terms of uh, anthropology, you made me think of linguistics because um, I studied linguistics and I did conversation analysis and everything that happens in a conversation. Um, that's emergence as well. You can never say in advance, this will definitely lead to this. The, the participants only have their current context and can react to what is exactly happening now. Uh, and that's very like that too. I love it when things come yeah. together. Yeah. Well, there you go. And, and here we are proving that because who knew we were going to end up talking about anthropology and, uh, and linguistics, right? That definitely wasn't on my crib sheet. There's, there's, there's something like full circle about this as well because 
because the thing it reminded me of was TDD, in that, <laughs> in that right, you, you like write the first test, and the feedback from that helps you write the second test, and maybe you have a couple of ideas of when you're going to go, but at some point you go, oh, there's a test, and you either write that one or write it down, and and the does uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. life is emergent. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Ah, oh, interesting. Just just to pull on another thread of that, which was about experts and patterns and trying to help understand those patterns of how you know what to test next. Um, one of the things that often can happen with experts is, as experts in a field, we build up such a body of knowledge that we can navigate really easily and quickly and, and we compile it. So we don't always know what leads us to, you know, do particular things or come up with particular prognoses as an expert. Um, so really interested in your kind of unpicking and trying to formalize that a little bit to teach it to people. Yeah, fascinating. The, the word I'm using for it is, um, is micro heuristics. Um, so in, in exploratory testing, we talk about heuristics a lot. So, um, and those will often be things of how do I generate test ideas or how can I structure a testing session? And they are, I have no, no bad words against them. They're incredibly useful. But what they don't do is I have just seen this and then I make a decision to do the next thing. And I got really put onto this because I was doing pairing sessions with other testers. And I was noticing that we would both sometimes get the same idea at the same time. And it wasn't, it wasn't like the, most obvious next idea and then you kind of once that's become salient to you you start noticing other things so one of the things one of the things i noticed very quickly is that if somebody creates something uh, for example in a ui you don't have to do exploratory testing via the ui but it's i think it's where most of it happens still um, people will create something and if it appears like in a list or in a tree they'll go and they'll select it or they'll click it um, and this is that's a good heuristic to me anyway because just because it's appeared in the ui doesn't mean that it's really there and there without any kind of a problem i've had applications where it's appeared and i've clicked it and i've got an error because it looks like it was there but it wasn't hmm. and i and just watching people do that like why did you do that and then so the the micro heuristic behind it is um i call it um, if you can touch it it's real uh, and those are tiny little things. I've just created it. And the next decision is to go and do something with it, to search for it, to select it, to click on it. Um, and, and I'm trying to get behind those because they come partially from experience. I had this one application. Uh, and they come from procedures that we've learned to do. And we, we really need to get better at describing those. It gets a little bit meta um, <laughs> talking about the things you're doing. But I think it's important because exploratory testing is at least in my opinion going to be one of the most important skills that testers and developers have over the coming years um and if we don't get better at teaching it then then i see problems so that sounds super valuable and are you intending to to document those somewhere are you going to write a book are you going to like what it sounds like sounds like the world i'm planning on writing a book and i haven't like i have the first few things and the first few chapters and i haven't made any progress with it yet so i need a bit of a kick up the bum um <laughs> But like I have the first few things and I have enough, I have enough examples to know that either that will be enough and then someone can take it and run with it or to trust that I can find other ones and I just need to sit down and actually put it into, I even made a lean pub account. That's like, <laughs> that's as far as I got. Oh, I need to kick up the bum and of like an eight day week or something. I think that would be good too. Yeah. Half an hour a day writing. That's... Yeah. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll bear that in mind. Five minutes, five minutes to start with. Yeah. Rebecca Worth's Brook is doing lots of work looking at 
teams design heuristics at the moment and there's definitely a corollary between what you're talking about and what what she's looking at thank you Um, and actually that I was wondering because I saw that your craft conference talk was about heuristics and that I kind of assumed that you were distilling some heuristics of your own about like how how do I know to do things so you can share them with other people and one of the things Rebecca does is um is tries to you know goes into teams and helps them find or distill their own heuristics and I wondered if uh if you if you had anything you could offer to our our listeners or teams about like how would they go about doing that what how could they you know what process could they use to try and work out what some of their their own head testing heuristics might be yeah so the um this was really again this is I love going to conferences because I learn so much um, and, and or, or I at least get confirmed things that I've been working with in my head or maybe better words for them so yeah. I would have said before CraftConf uh, that doing a test opsy is um, the best way of doing it a test opsy basically means narrating observing uh, recording um, it is like by talking about your own testing and thinking about what is it that I am doing right now what are what are my thought processes this is where it gets kind of difficult because not only are you doing the very difficult work of exploratory testing mentally you're then also reflecting on what is it i'm doing from the things that you identify you then you you label them you make them explicit and you try and do them deliberately and of course once you start looking at things like this you start to notice those patterns in other people as well like ah that, that person did that too or why did you do that um and funnily enough in the uh, in the keynote uh, where I was saying about novices and, and experts, it turns out that one of the ways of getting novices to be closer to experts or to get to amass that information is to do things like give an example, ask them to make a judgment about it. So say, um, what, what would you think about this? Uh, and then to explain how you see it um, and to keep doing that for many 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 examples so somewhere between actually just getting being explicit about what you're doing and working with the people who are the experts and having them be explicit about what they're doing so that you can learn from their stories their experience and how they're doing things Mm. Um, which is really cool because that means that as somebody who's gained a lot of experience over the years I'm still useful even if I'm not in a project 100% of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is good for my ego. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminds me of um, some work which you, I don't know, you may, you may well know of but might not, um, called, about something called legitimate per- peripheral participation. Oh, I think so that's what she was say. referring to. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that's Leibam and Wenger. And, um, and one of my favourite stories that they talk about is, very oddly, I suppose in this context, is tribal midwifery and how when, uh, when they have a new person in a tribe and they've decided this person, we're going to train them up to be the midwife, from a very young age, all they do is really accompany the midwife. And eventually they might, you know, might be kind of like, can you get me some hot water? Can you get me this? Can you get me that? And then they'll see lots and lots of different births. And then eventually it'll be like, well, actually you can deal with a really simple one and I'll just be here in case something goes wrong to having seen the broad range of anything that can happen almost. And then eventually when the, when the elder midwife is too old and infirm or eventually dies, then the younger midwife's ready to, ready to kind of come through. And that model of, being peripherally involved in something and 
gaining that almost encyclopedia in your head of all the different things going on so you can build some of those pathways yeah amazing amazing and it's all about storytelling as well so um the this is this is the scary thing i've done some i've done some um live narrated exploratory testing of applications that i've never seen before um i have a bit of a tendency to push myself out into my panic zone uh, and that was definitely a and, and so i'm standing there in front of the a group going okay and i'm assuming that I'm assuming that this is the case because I've seen this and I'm inferring that this means it might be a microservices architecture or something. And it is entirely possible at that point that somebody in the audience would go, nope, that's not what that means at all. Or <laughs> there could be four other examples. Or, But the thing is, the great thing about your experiences is that nobody can tell you that your experience was wrong. So all I can do by explaining my things and, and how I've built my models is enrich them by learning from others and help others by sharing what I'm thinking about. Mm. Um, and there's that aspect of storytelling in there, learning from what other people have done. And, and this, the, but they, even if that person did say, nope, they've learned something really useful about what their application is, is, is the information that's given out, right? So while we're tangenting a little bit, I noticed a tweet from you, Alex, that somebody had asked you whether ravens were dinosaurs and it was something to do with your talk. And I'm so intrigued. I was just like, I have to find out the answer to why did someone ask you if ravens were dinosaurs? So uh, can you enlighten me, please? Otherwise, I'm going to go through my day scratching my head. Okay, this comes from, um, so I have, when I introduce exploratory testing, um, then one of the reasons I say why we need it is because of unknown unknowns, um, things that we couldn't plan for. So we can only write we can only write a test case or any kind of scripted test for a risk that we can identify. And the problem is that there are risks we can't identify, and those are always the ones that bite us. Um, and I had that that's always been the way that I've described that. And then. Uh, about August last year, I was actually giving a course, a two-day course on exploratory testing at customers, and I went for a run in the park. Uh, it was early morning in a park. I didn't know it was dark. I'm a lone woman running, and of course, there are risks that I identify. And then I, I you know, I asked the participants what risks do they think, and the first thing they said was that I would get lost. So thank you. Um, but of course, I could be, I could get lost. I could be injured. Uh, I could be attacked by somebody. Um, and what I did not expect was to be attacked by a pelican. And his, because it turns out that in this park, there is a pelican. And I grew up in Liverpool. So basically, the birds that I know are sparrows and pigeons. And anything that is neither a sparrow nor a pigeon is basically a, a dinosaur. This is, and, and a pelican, they, that looks like a pterodactyl. I mean, yeah. I've seen Jurassic Park. I know what a pterodactyl is. <laughs> and so I, I approached, I was like, I think I was aware it was a pelican to be very fair to my own ornithology skills. But I was like, <laughs> wow, this is basically a dinosaur. And I went up to it to take a picture and it took a run at me and I ran away. Um, <laughs> and so that's my story about what I did not expect to have the risk of being attacked by a dinosaur in, yeah. in my terminology. Um, and, and, and because I told the story and said, basically, if it's, if it's neither a sparrow nor a pigeon, then it's a dinosaur. And then, yeah, somebody said, are ravens dinosaurs? To which now you know the answer is a clear yes. Um, so we talked about, I suppose, I suppose this is, at least it's about minds. So we talked about minds and mindsets and um, expertise and stuff and about, and about really getting that mindset, that qualities 
for everybody on the team to be involved in, that it's not just one for one person. And I was intrigued about how I'd have felt, you know, particularly in the eons ago when I was a really super junior programmer um, in the days that, you know, kind of predating pair programming being, being popular, any of that, how I'd have felt if a tester had come up to me and said, oh, could, you know, do you want to pair unit test? I'd have been so like terrified of exposing my lack of knowledge or what I was doing or whatever. So, I mean, what, what tips or, you know, what, what kind of things do you, have you got there or have you seen that have worked really well? You're going to make me mention biscuit driven development, aren't you? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, food, I, 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 I at least credit myself with inventing biscuit driven development and uh, food, food breeds trust. So it can be something as small as if you have, if you baked biscuits, then, then bring them, give them to people. And it can be as, it can be as deliberate as basically, if you let me sit beside you for an hour, you can have a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it entirely depends. It's, it's so weird. It sounds, it sounds so trivial, but it, it works so well because basically, basically we're all just humans looking for human connection. And, and food is one of the most primal things that does that. And sharing food is, um, is something that does that. I remember, I remember reading a while ago that one of the things you should never do as a woman in tech is, is to bake and, and to give it to your team because that gives them all of the ki wrong kind of uh, ideas. And, and that really upset me for a while until I thought, sod it. I think I'll use that word for a podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I thought, well, first of all, maybe... Maybe by my example, people can learn that this isn't a thing that either you bake biscuits or you're a great woman in tech, because mm. I don't think that those two are mutually exclusive. No, and, second, well, and Liverpool, I think, yeah. you know, you can live in Liverpool or not, unlike dinosaurs. It, exactly. Um, and, and the other thing is like, this is one of my, this is one of the best things I have. <laughs> this is, <laughs> take that away from me. I don't know how, what's left. <laughs> I don't know how effective I am with all this. Um, but, but it is, you, you do have to be careful because there are, um, I... I am the kind of, I'm, I'm one of those 100% extroverts, will happily sit next to people for hours, uh, talk all day, and then be after about half an hour in my hotel room, go, oh, I'm really lonely. Um, and apparently not everybody in tech is like that. Uh, so you do have to kind of be careful, make sure that the, um, make sure that the, your intentions are clear. And I usually approach it by saying, my aim is to learn from you in this. And, and that's one of the things I actually did. I started learning to program so that I could understand what developers were doing more and have more empathy for them. And that's often how I've approached it to say, can we do this so I can learn from you? Um, which is my aim. It's not, this isn't me mind tricking them, although we have, I have used that, <laughs> used that phrase sometimes, but then of course you get into a conversation and the, mm. that makes that means that maybe I'll get to put my input in there. Um, so the other, the other option I use is just to basically say, okay, who's willing to do an experiment with me? Who's willing to see if this, this works? It doesn't have to, but let's try it because at the, at the worst, it's going to cost us both an hour. Mm. So, yeah. And what's the, so when you said you, you learned programs and, 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 and started sitting with programmers more to sort of understand and get insight into the work that they were doing, can you think of it like what anything surprised you when you when you first did that anything that you thought what like programmers do this really yeah so there was my, my first moment of utter empathy um was I always I was always like null pointers 
literally, how can you be so stupid to point to something that does not exist? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Tiki and I laughing because we're thinking of all the thousands of times we did that, probably. <laughs> and then the very, very first time I had to write something that had more than like two methods or two classes and got my own very first bull pointer. <laughs> <laughs> So I think there was that, like, what, what I realized to me, and so for me, the biggest thing was empathy, um, especially as you get, you get used as a tester, as a product owner, to, to seeing how quickly you can say something like, oh, but can we make it do this as well? And, and seeing in, in good teams, even in mediocre teams, how quickly that can happen. And then putting myself in the position of, and I was only writing tiny little example applications and I'd be like yeah I got it to do this thing and then somebody said okay now I want it to be able to do that for multiple things I'm like I'm gonna have to rewrite it damn it um this is gonna take so much work and and I have to keep so much of it in my head and and at some point I got okay with that like I was I knew kind of what patterns I had to go through uh, to do things. So my understanding of programming is basically you put things in lists and iterate over them. That has been so far for 90% of the time, how to solve the problem. Um, and that's helpful too, because that gives me some good gray box information on applications sometimes. But then, then it was like, okay, let's start looking at databases or XML or UIs. And then suddenly you start having to use libraries that you don't know about mm. and that you, and, and I'm a bit of a control freak. So if I didn't like, if I don't have the control over it, I don't feel happy. And, and I just got so, so much empathy into, yeah, you know, if you, we, we say that, you know, if you can program in one language, sure, you can program in another or you will, you'll learn that easily. But I, I have a bit more of an understanding what kind of things go into that, even just saying, oh, can you make this? Can you make this thing a little bit different? Can you make this support multi-selection? Can you make this do this before that? Um, that I think that was one of the biggest things that I got out of it. I think it helps my testing as well, because the more you know, the more test ideas you get too. Uh, but it was definitely an empathy thing. Mm. And do you think, do you feel like, it's, I'm interested that it made you a better tester because you knew more. I mean, one of the things historically people have always said is, you know, you must never test your own code because you'll know too much. Do you, do you think that? Do you think there's a fine line between knowing, knowing more and, and like being too close and knowing too much? Or do you think that's just fallacy and, and not really true? I think, I think there's a continuum. So one of the things that I say in the, in the whole team quality thing when I say, uh, you know, we started teaching developers to test and then there's this like, oh no, but you should have complete separation of your development and testing teams. And I do say that that is so last millennium. That really, no, that's not where we are anymore. And um, I do think that on that continuum, shortly before not testing your code at all the next the step before that is testing the thing that you have written mm. i believe that with i think that there are people that can do that to some degree of some degree of aptitude but you need time and it's context switching and it's mindset switching and and that's just that's just cognitively hard so mm. i would generally disprefer that um but is it as a as a general knowing more that there's, I think Goiko Ajik once did a great keynote um, about how to, about how to basically not test well. And he did it in his very inimitable way of, uh, he was like, never tell the testers what you've done. If they know what you've done, they'll know the answer. <laughs> um, and, and that kind of highlights how, how ridiculous this idea of 
I, I deliberately keep a secret from myself or I deliberately keep it from somebody else in the hope that if there is something, they'll find it on their own. No, let's, mm. let's share all of the information. Let's use all of the information we have. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, um, I don't think it's been, what's the word for non-beneficial? I don't think it's been disadvantageous, <laughs> uh, to me, um, quite the opposite. In fact, yeah. There's this whole thing, right? That, that, uh, well, going back to what you were saying earlier about quality being the whole team's responsibility, you know, the, the outcome is the whole team's responsibility as well. And, and, and this thing about keeping things separate doesn't work. If we think about together, what it is that we're going to be testing for once we've built the software, then you know, it helps the developers think about how they're going to build it so it's testable and what it yeah. really needs to do. And it helps the testers think about how they're going to, how they're going to, well, it gives them the information that they need for their exploratory testing to actually be focused and not completely yes. unstructured. And, yeah, and, and just it also, it hopefully gets us onto the, onto the conversation of um, maybe not just talking about whole team quality because quality is still just one aspect, but actually, like you said, the value. Um, and sometimes the most valuable way of implementing a feature might be that we decide we don't need it. Right. Um, and, and, and I'm not, I don't think that all of those conversations will necessarily happen from these type of conversations, but I think that the likelihood of them happening, oh, wait, so we'll want it to do this. Why did we want it to do this? Because of that and that. Is this actually responding to that need or is there a different way of doing it? Um, and I've, I've had fascinating conversations where we've designed a wonderful big feature and like, how long are we going to need for this to do this and the testing and that and blah, two, three weeks. And I've gone as a product owner, oh, but, you know, can I have it quicker? And then someone said, well, if we just did this, then you can have it tomorrow. But bear in mind, it will have this, this and this that we can't do with it. And often those you can have it tomorrow. It's not always the case, sadly, but often those you can have it tomorrow have been the things that we ended up staying with because that's all we needed. So yeah, it's, it's all sharing information, having that same, the shared goal. Um, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think Thanks. that's a lovely, uh, <laughs> like point to finish. That's a, that's a, that's a message I'd love to go, go out to the world as the ending point. Yeah, absolutely. So Alex, and I think we are going to have to, we are going to wrap up to there, but um, as, as we know from each other, we could just talk to each other all day, basically. Can we? <laughs> oh, let's just keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if people want to know more and or want to get in touch with you, Alex, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so um, you can get me on Twitter. I'm Alex underscore S-C-H-L. Um, you can contact not me directly, or maybe you can contact me directly. You can contact my company via www.bredex, B-R-E-D-E-X.de. So I do, um, I do do a lot of training, like exploratory testing and agile mindset and leadership for testers. And I love doing stuff like that. So if, if you're, if you think that the, the crazy girl that just spoke for an hour about what would, where did we get to dinosaurs and linguistics? (laughs) Um, that, that can be highly relevant for your team. So, um, yeah, give us a <laughs> by the Braidex website. Um, I think I'm and also on LinkedIn and Sync. So, yeah. Sorry, you're also? I'm also on LinkedIn and Sync. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Um, and I think you also wanted to mention something about Project Quality Day. Did, yes. So, as part of the Eclipse Con Europe that happens in October every year, I've been organizing a day dedicated to quality, I think, for the last, like, five years it's happening again this year and there's going to be a call for papers going out for it so i'm hopeful 
that I'll be able to get as many cool papers from the testing community in there as I can. It is a developer conference um, and they are interested in hearing about testing. So, uh, and it's, I think it's one of my, it's one of my aims to get those two communities closer together. So um, look at, follow me on Twitter and then you'll see when I start tweeting about it. Yeah. Brilliant. Alex, as always, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you. Um, I, hope, I hope I get to see you soon. Um, you tend, you're quite prolific on the conference circuit these days, so I'm sure yeah. I will. I'm I live sure. in airports at the moment. Um. <laughs> Bless you. Um, so, so thank you, Alex. Thanks, Tiki. Um, thanks for listening, listeners. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please comment and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye.